As we come to Psalm 10 this morning, we will deal with what we can almost call false expectations. And you'll see when we get get through it that you could almost expect from Psalm 9, which Gideon went through last week, that God's kingdom is here. God is the judge. He will judge the nations. He will judge his enemies. But then in Psalm 10, we see a different picture. In Psalm 9, Gideon preached God the judge on the throne. And there we saw how David praised God for his righteousness, for his justice. And although David was still in trouble in Psalm 9, he praised God in it. Gideon taught us that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were usually treated or read in, uh, in conjunction, that they read them together. If you have Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as lines, the first word in each line will be a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in English, it would be the first word would be A something, and then the next line would be B something, and then this next first word in the next sentence would be C. That's A, B, C, D, E down to Z in, in Hebrew, then obviously. So although it doesn't specific, specifically say at the top of your Bible, of David, Psalm 9 and 10 are treated as of David, and there some, some think it's by some other author, but we feel that there's quite good certainty that is from David, so I will treat it as such. What I mean with false expectations is that both Psalm 9 and 10 are psalms where the psalmist pleads for deliverance. Psalm 9 is very optimistic, placing trust in God, in God's ways. Psalm 9 opens up with praise and thanks, then goes back and forth between praising God's role as judge of the nations and a more steadfast thankfulness of God as the refuge and then ends with anticipation, looking forward to the final judgment of the nations. Psalm 10 opens up with a more sorrowful tune. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? It is a pleading prayer. Lord, where are you? This is what we will look at today, seeing how some Psalm, how Psalm 9 shows it that it's supposed, what it's supposed to be like, God's God's plan, God's will, and in other psalms, like Psalm 10, we see the experience of the world, the evil in it, the unfairness, the darkness in people. So this is what I mean. Psalm 9 gives us this high and heavenly hope, while Psalm 10 shows us the earthly experience compared to it. But as we will notice, the end of Psalm 10 will also, as Psalm 9 did, give us hope to hold on to as earthly evil will not stand in divine judgment. David opens up in Lamentations. He pleads with God to see what is going on on earth, looking outwards to all that he sees, the atrocities he sees and experiences before there comes a pretty stark change of view where he then, in the middle, directs his plea to God to do something about all that he sees in the world. Although the psalm usually is in poetic form, there's almost a narrative in it. It speaks of the evilness, but then it, it climaxes in God, the judge, 
and then we have a new situation where the nations have been judged. So this is what we will explore today. As the emphasis is on trusting God in the apparent apparent contradictions between God's theoretic heavenly and practical earthly kingdom. So there there is not a conflict, but there you can almost see a apparent or almost as an a um, not a parallel, but a distortion there. This text will call us to suffer in the light of God's love, which also the title of this sermon, Suffer in the Light of God's Love. It's not suffering because God's word always comes to us to teach us to do something, to, to give us a way of life, how to act. So I call you to suffer, but in the light of God's love, which will permeate everything and which will actually allow us to suffer through it. Because suffering is not optional. The world is as it is, but God's love will get us through it. The fact that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 has a connection gives us hope and a reason to hold on to God and God's promises from Psalm 9. And we'll see through Psalm 10 that suffering is temporary. So suffer well. And we can do this because God has not left us alone. The first half of the psalm, I will ask a question from the text. As the psalmist complains of the wickedness, does God not see suffering? And secondly, we will join David as he answers that question with a yes. God does see the suffering and he will deal with it as David prays to God to appear for the relief of his people in verses 12 to 18 then, because God is a loving judge, which will be my second point. First now, and join me in verse 1 as we see it. Does God not see suffering? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? As I've mentioned, this seems to go against what Psalm 9 9 says, where David praises God as a stronghold of the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Yet now God is hiding from the trouble of the world. Psalm 9 gives us the heavenly hope, while Psalm 10 shows us the earthly experience. So they're both true at the same time, but they're experienced on different levels. And in this reality of living among sinful people, David is troubled by what he sees and experiences. And he says, it is so bad as if God is absent. He says that what he experiences at earth is almost as bad as if God is, he doesn't exist. It is a pretty strong contrast to what God, Psalm 9 spoke of as God as a refuge point. And this is what I mean with the false expectation. Because when we saw the truth preached, and as we can read in Psalm 9, he has this lofty and strong assurance that God is the stronghold. He is the refuge for his people. But then when he turns around and lives in the world, it is as if there's a shift and he sees only the negative. He sees the wicked doing evil as we will go through. 
it is as if, if he's saying, this is a God-forsaken land. In the psalm so far, we have seen in Psalm 1, the perfect man. Psalm 2, the rebellious man. Psalm 3, how the perfect man was rejected. 4 to 8, you see the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. How they fight, how the godly and the wicked clash. And Psalm 9 to 15 shows us that there's a conflict in the world between God's people and the people of the nations. So Psalm 4 and 8, they contain almost the Jesus versus the devil. And Psalm 19 to 15 is the, the believers versus the unbelievers almost. So we're in a portion now where we will see warring between God's kingdom and earth. But this is the tension we discover when we enter Psalm 9 to 10. And in this God-forsaken land, David has a long list of accusations of the wicked and arrogant person who ignores God and oppresses the weak. For the confidence in, in God's rule in the end of Psalm 9, to the astonishment of the present condition here in Psalm 10, Martin Luther once said that there is not, in my judgment, his judgment, a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. So he's saying there's no other psalm, according to Martin Luther, that more fully describes the works of the wicked and the end of the wicked. We see that the wicked and greedy, in verse 3, boast of the desires of his soul and curses and renounces the Lord. And verse 4 says that in pride he does not seek God. No, all his thoughts are, there is no God. And the psalmist asks, God, do you not see this? The wicked, in verse 11, says, God doesn't see it. This can be our experience from time to time as well. We feel like we are alone and that God is not there to help us. It is a painful and true reality of many people all over the world at all times that we feel that we are left to ourselves. But God's word in this text doesn't say, it doesn't say that we can stay in that sorrow. Because as we will see throughout the psalm, that God is there all the time. And so as one commentator said, we stand far off from God by our unbelief and then complain that God stands afar from us. We stand far from God by our unbelief and then complain that God stands afar from us. Sin also makes it seem like God is far from us. Because when we sin, we have desired something other, something more than God. And so we leave his presence. Here we see the hurt David is going through. And he fires off words after words against these wicked people for what they do and who they are. A lesson here. David is experiencing the sin around him. Most likely also experiencing experienced directly at him so he rightly 
calls out to God. Do you see this happening around the, to the nations and to, and to me? We can rightly ask that of God. But I would call you to trust in God. Are you complaining about people, nations, or organizations? The same commentator said that passionate words against bad men do more hurt than good. If we speak of their badness, let it be to the Lord in prayer. Let us not be gossiping, let us not be complaining, but let us be praying. It's right to pray, God, help me in these wicked times. It is not right to be, oh, it's always wicked around here. That is a complaining and murmuring spirit, which God in other places in the Bible says, don't do it. But praying to God through all times and with all words and with all feelings is always appropriate as long as it's directed to him in faith. So if we speak of their badness, let it be to the Lord in prayer. He can make them better. And that is the decisive manner in our Christian walk. Do we complain almost to the air as if, it's, as if no one is listening to us? Or do we bring it to God in prayer? Let this be one of the things that you take away from this text, that we can complain in a sense, but as long as it is done in faith to God and not just complaining and being grumbling. As much as David will go on to describe the wickedness, and we can feel his emotions through this, we can see his emotions get riled up and maybe you feel it as well. He goes with it to the Lord in prayer. He starts off with a prayer, he describes it, and he ends it with a prayer. And there's plenty of evil to go to the Lord with, as we will see here in verse 3. He boasts of his own desires. He renounces the Lord. The The devil tried to play this card with Job, to get Job to renounce and curse the Lord by attacking his health, his belongings, and all of his all of his relations. Even Job's wife told him to curse God and die. Friends, whatever you're going through, bring it to the Lord and do not blame him for for the evil. Yes, there are evil men and women in the world, and David puts the ones who do not seek God and the ones who do not think about God on the same level as those who actively renounces the Lord. Against all these, the Romans, as Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They are as, as if a floating ball, like you have in a pool, but you push it down under the water. You can't just push it down and it will stay down because it's air, it wants to go up. So you have to actively suppress it to keep it on the water. That is the way Romans 1 here speaks of the evil suppressing the knowledge of God. They're trying to push it down and keep it down so they don't have to deal with it. But back, back to our text, as it describes them who do not, does not seek God, although his, all his thoughts are there is no God. And so this is not done in a humble way, but a prideful with a prideful face. There's a striking similarities between our text and 2 Timothy 3, where Paul describes the attitude of the world in the last days. People will be lovers of self, of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, unholy, heartless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
I think this might be the experience of all of us here, that we have spoken to some or any unbeliever, and most of them laugh at God, pridefully reject Him. And when we see their life and what they do, we see at their core, however good they may seem, they are just as Paul describes here in Second Timothy 3, and also at the core here in Psalm 10. As I hinted at in verse 11 and also in 13 in our text, 11 and 13, they cannot not think of God. They say, there is no God, but he also hides and he cannot see me. So in their logic, there's something off which shows their hand that they're forcefully trying to keep down, down God. It's like, God doesn't exist. He doesn't see. He doesn't think about me. There is no God. But in their arrogance and in their logic, they show that they, they, they really know that God exists, but they are actively trying to push it away. No, none can remove God. It will eventually show itself that the wicked in David's days and in ours, that they hate God, yet they declare he does not exist. They should fear God, as Proverbs 1.7 says, and they would know wisdom by it. Yet in his folly, he does not care. And verse 5, God's judgments are high out of his sight. He doesn't see them. He doesn't care to look. They are almost as removed from his face. They are high above him. And since he doesn't fear God and he doesn't approach God, he doesn't see God's judgment. He does not care for God, and so he will not see what God says about the wicked. As Isaiah prayed in Isaiah 26, 11, Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your seal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. But what is the thoughts of the wicked? Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversities. Adversities is resistance or troubles. But the same pride is met by a voice from heaven in Revelation 18. And I encourage you to, write, to read Revelation 18 later on. It's a pretty extensive reading on the fall of Babylon. And Babylon is the image of all wickedness. And this voice says, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she, sits, says, she says in her, in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. But God gives judgment on her. Babylon, which is an image of all wickedness. Or verse 7 in our text. His mouth is filled, filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Directly quoted in Romans 3, where Paul describes the human wickedness when he explains that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In that text, he quotes from this psalm. And the rest of this portion, he describes the actions of the wicked. So now we have had seen the thoughts, the hearts of the wicked, and now we see what he does. He ambushes, verse 8, he murders the innocent. He watches for the helpless. 9, he lurks like a lion. He seizes the poor. 11, 
He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The sinner proudly glories in all his power and all his success, contradicting the judgment of God, cast off all thoughts of him and all of his dependence upon and devotion to and makes light of God's commandments and judgments. God will not see what I'm doing. He doesn't know. First John 2.16 reminds us that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, wicked and sinful men and women are arrogant. As our text says, in arrogance the wicked pursues the poor. They are self-centered. They deny God his works and his commandments and believe themselves to be free of God they even say, say there is no God and so they act as there is no higher standard than themselves there's no one to hold them accountable pridefully and wickedly they chant only God can judge me denying him and his judgments they even think that they can judge God I can't believe in a God who is the same as saying I know more. I know better than God. Let us not think the same, thinking that we know better than God. And let us not think that God does not see the wickedness of the world like practical atheists. We are Christians. We are called to follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, we know that he has promised to deal with wickedness and with the world and the devil. So let us not think, oh, God doesn't see it, but let us bring it to him in prayer. Let us therefore see the rest of Psalm 10 and where it leads us as we move into the last portion, verses 12 to 18, as I hope to show you that God is a loving judge. In the first half, David has looked around, described what he sees and experiences as he lives his life. Now he will ascribe to the Lord a prayer for God to do something about it. Verse 12 in our text says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. And we can sense the emotions boiling in him and in, in us as well. And when we read it, we've all experienced some hurt or some evil, some sin. Let this be our prayer as well. Lift your hand, God, and forget not the afflicted. David asks God to rise in order to help the helpless. This lifting of the hand as we see here, is also seen in Micah 5.9, where God is asked to lift his hand over his adversaries and all his enemies would be cut off, Micah says. It is an expression of strength and power, especially as used in context for retaliation. David asks, please God, cut them off. Retaliate against them for the evil that they do. David has described the ways the evil person is dealing with the weak and the poor. And now he is asking God to help those who cannot help themselves. Arise, Lord, show yourselves to be to those who say you hide your face and do not see. The wicked says, God must not see. And the poor might be tempted to think the same thing. David prays that God would prove them both wrong. 
both the wicked who says, there is no God, I can do what I want, and to the wicked, no, to the poor who might fall into the sin of thinking, maybe there is no God, maybe I'm just here by myself. But David prays to God that God would prove them both wrong. Why does the wicked renounce God and says in his heart, verse 13, you call not into account? As a commentator, Horn wrote, the long suffering of God, instead of leading such a one to repentance, only hardens him in his iniquity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, he thinks it will not be executed at all. Have you ever heard someone say, well, even challenge God, cursing or doing something in front of you, blaspheming, and then waiting to see if someone would, something would happen, like cursing and then like, no lightning struck me today. This is the attitude of the wicked that David here asked God to deal with. God and his word is made fun of. And so God speaks to, of them in Hosea 8.12 that if God were to write for him the laws by the tens of thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. The wicked sees God's judgment, sees his ways, his laws, and regard them as strange, as weird, as unjust. And the wicked continues to say in his heart, you will not call into account the things he does. He will not bring it to judgment, to account, count as or reckon as evil. But we see that that is false and vain. The atheist, the unbeliever, dies not recognizing God and they do not hold God's teaching in regard and so they do not believe that there will be a day of judgment but judgment will come to them so the question then is why does the wicked act with contempt because they, don't, they do not know him his judgments are far above them he does not want to see them but the Lord does see, verse 14, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account. It's like, call it to the front. Show it. It's like a, an accounting firm. He says, this is the money that you've spent. This is the money you've earned. He asked God, show him what he's done. Call him to account for it. Like an accountant might ask, why did you spend so many, much money on office equipments? And you can say, well, I did this because this reason I needed it for blah, blah, blah. David asks God to call into account, why did you curse me? Why did you treat my poor wickedly? Why did you, why did you uh, hide in villages pressing the poor? Why did you do this? Why did you do this? He does note mischief. He is not far away and cannot see. David affirms that God is the helper of the helpless and able to, as Gideon preached last Lord's Day, that the Lord is able to bring people from the gates of death to the gates of Jerusalem.
to his holy hill, his holy city. Paul wants to encourage Timothy in, the, in his second letter to him, speaking of the gospel, which is why he suffers as he does, Paul suffering under the torment and the persecution, because he holds to the name of Christ. And he says to, to Timothy, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. David knew, Paul knew, and I hope we all know that although we do suffer in this world, God takes it all into account. He knows them all, and he will one day break the arm of the wicked in the sense of disarming their ability to do harm anymore. And as our New Testament says this morning, 1 Peter 4, that we should not be surprised at the fiery trials we face as though something strange were happening to us. But it says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And in 1 Peter 4:17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is as if he's saying, let us deal with wickedness in our own midst. Let us follow Christ. Let there not, it says, let, if someone, someone suffers for this or this or that, this, this is not uh, a good suffering because they're suffering because of their own sins. But if you suffer for Christ, for his name, for his gospel, then we have hope. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, verse 19 in our New Testament text, let those who suffer according to God, God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer in the world at the hands of the world, the devil and the flesh, be encouraged with a, well, with a well-grounded faith that God does see it and notes it down Gideon spoke of God the judge last time. This image continues in this psalm where God will call to account what has been done. And although we might find some of these enemies dangerous as we live our lives, God shall seek those who contend with him, those who fight against him, the wicked, but shall find, shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. It's not that God will not find them, but he will find no one able to contend with him. He will deal with it. He will, he will crush the wicked and judge them. They are, those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. Isaiah fourteen twelve. They are dust to him, and this will be their end, what he will do to them. Closing in now. In verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man of who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Exodus 15:18 also says, the Lord is king forever and ever. 
He sits enthroned over the flood. He sits enthroned as king forever, Psalm 29. And to tie in the godlike, the judge-like role of his kingship. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. The Lord is king. He reigns forever. And as our psalm opened in doubt or maybe fear, it ends in confidence in the sovereign. All the enemies of the Lord are overthrown and defeated. God's rule is total. And David speaks of this event, this future event in his time, so surely as if it already were done. He says, the Lord is king and all the nations will be nothing to him. The nations then speaking of the wicked people. As Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 1, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be, on, be honor and glory forever and ever. And later in Revelations 11, where the voices in heaven shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his, he shall reign forever and ever. Verse 18 in our text, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This man is from the dust. He will return to it while God is king forever and ever. Psalm 10 calls us to trust God who will keep you and who will deal with your adversaries. And in speaking of your adversaries, it's both speaking of the external, the world, the devil, but also the internal, the remaining sin in you. Even though you suffer now, I call you to suffer in the light of God's love. We do not suffer for no reason. We do not suffer alone. We suffer while God is the judge on the throne who helps the fatherless, who is a sure stronghold to the afflicted. We know that our adversary is sin, tempted by the devil, experienced in the world, and the corrupter of our own soul. We are to live in the world, but not of the world. And there will come a day when the wicked will spread their evil no more. And the devil will be cut off. And our hearts will belong to Jesus Christ alone. Knowing this, that there is suffering in the world, that God does see, that he does deal with it as a loving judge, he will not let evil run rampant. Knowing this, we can hold on because we know who holds us, whom, to whom every knee will bow, the one who made us and who helps us to live for him as he made us accounted righteous. Remember that when you voice your concern in the world, let it come out as prayer to God so that we are not practical atheists, ignoring God or not thinking he can do anything about it, but believe God and all his promises. So suffer in the light of God's love because God loves his people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son he loves his people.
to any who hears this, who are like the wicked in this text, or if any who hear this message who act like the wicked here in this text, do not assume that you have forever to repent. Do it today, as the judge of all the earth will do what is just. The sinful man does not want justice. The sinful man wants mercy. We are no different. We were dead in sin, but because of God's great love, he purchased us and he, he made recompense to the account that were done in our name. So we, the, the Lord is judge, he's, he's a judge and he is judging justly. He will do what is just. And his mercy was that he judged his son instead of us. Remember, the Lord is king. His reign is eternal and it does not fail. He hears the prayers of his people. He sees the wicked in his pride. He will do justice. If you're Christ's, give thanks for the gospel. For without this grace, Psalm 10 would be about you and me. Let us pray.